0: I've only ever babysat twice in my life. Last time I did it was seven years ago for some neighbors down the road. They wanted to go on a date night and they asked me to look after their baby. I think it was one year old. It was in diapers, okay, that's the important part. So the baby and I, we hung out for the evening. It was a great time, scotch and cigars, poker. We talked about Canadian foreign policy and the baby started to get a little bit fussy started to squirm in its seat. I could tell it was a little bit uncomfortable. And what a professional would do at this point is they would, you know, check the diaper, do a little pat down, damage control, see if there's some maintenance work that needs to be done. But I, I didn't want to look. I was I was too scared to. I was I was in denial of the possibility of, of changing a diaper. Didn't want to do it. So I just said, "Ha ha, baby. Okay, uh, let's, let's let's go to bed now. Time for bed. You know, maybe parents are back in half an hour. They can they can handle this." And as soon as I said that, I I think the baby started frowning at me. It went from happy to. You know what you need to do. And I was acting like I didn't know what was going on, like, oh, yeah, a little bit fussy. Let's go to bed. And the baby was glaring at me so intensely that I, I broke. I was broken by the the will of a one-year-old child. And so I decided, all right, let's let's do this diaper thing. So I took the the baby to. The, I shouldn't do that. I took I took the baby to its its changing pad, its charging station. Um, still quietly hoping to myself that the glass would be half empty. If you know what I'm talking about. And so I. I opened, I opened it up. I looked under the hood and the, the cup runneth over. So I, I did a cleanup on aisle four and it was horrible. I should have refused labor due to unsafe work conditions. That was a biohazard. Never wanted to do it again. That's why I married a pediatric nurse, by the way. But I did it. And then, you know, you get the new diaper to put on the baby. And diapers, they're kind of like a It's like an origami Venus flytrap. It goes around the baby, uh, but I couldn't get the the two halves to to stay put, to stick. I put all the pieces there and the baby stood up and the diaper fell off. And so I'm looking at this thing, like do do you have to wet it like paper mache or something? How does this stay together? I had an idea, a very Canadian idea. I went down to the kitchen (laughs) and I, I took some duct tape and I came back up And I duct taped the parts of the diaper all back together. It took 15 minutes. The kid looked like a redneck Tarzan, but I got it to stay put. A few years later, my wife finds out about this whole thing and she's laughing so hard, she's almost crying. And she tells me that on diapers, there's there's actually these little like sticky tabs that you peel off and that's how you get the whole thing to stay together. So the way that I was doing it was completely wrong. Maybe you've had moments or experiences like that, where you learn the way you've been doing something is totally wrong. You're putting together an Ikea chair. It's supposed to take three minutes and you're three hours into this and nothing's going right. Or maybe you've learned there's an easier way to do something You know, with fixing a car or making a recipe or raising kids or growing a plant or training a dog. Now imagine if you made a mistake like this, of this you know magnitude with your whole life, what you thought life was, what you thought life was all about, how it ought to be lived. Imagine if you were completely off and had spent your whole life going in the wrong direction. That is a terrible, terrifying possibility. And the Apostle Paul is going to be talking today about this kind of danger, this kind of risk, not of incorrectly putting together a chair or building a diaper, but of building a life. If you were made by God, and if you were made for God, then the biggest source of blessing in your life or the biggest problem in your life would have to do with how you relate to God. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was delivering a a address when he was receiving the Templeton Prize, and he was talking about the horrors that took place in the Soviet Union in the 20th century. And he said that these arose and took place in Russia because... Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. So today we're gonna to be seeing what this great danger is and this danger that specifically applies not to you know, just those non-believers, non-Christians, non-religious people, but it's a danger that relates to religious people as well, perhaps more so than anybody else. So would you open your Bibles with me to the Book of Romans. The Apostle Paul has been explaining in the Book of Romans, this letter to the Roman church, what God's purposes are, and how their lives might map onto this. This week marks the final verses, the final three verses of Romans chapter 9, where Paul has been addressing this whole time this question, if God's promises to Israel, if God's promises to his people have somehow failed, did God not keep his word? And this calls into question God's righteousness. Righteousness is one of the overarching themes of the whole book of Romans. Some scholars would say righteousness is the main theme of the book of Romans. We we said a while back in Romans chapter eight that Romans kind of has a symphonic structure. It's built like a symphony. Paul develops themes and sometimes he develops themes in contrast to one another. Sometimes he recapitulates these themes in different keys. Sometimes there's hints of these keys in prior movements, uh, hints of these themes. Sometimes there's echoes of these themes in later movements as well. One such theme, is God's righteousness. And not righteousness in terms of a moral status, like we would say that's a righteous person or that's a self-righteous person. But righteousness here, it's the language of covenant and of law court. It's a forensic legal status. It's the language of obligations and faithfulness and trustworthiness. And here's part of how this theme of righteousness has been developed. This is kind of imperfect. But chapters one to three seemed to develop this theme of the need for righteousness on our parts, how we're justly underneath God's wrath and we need to be in right standing with him because we're not. Chapters one, two, and three. Chapters four to eight, perhaps five to eight, talks about this provision of righteousness, how God has provided the opportunity for us to be in right standing, right relationship with him, because of his son, Jesus. Jesus came, died, and rose. And one of the consequences of this is that now we have the opportunity to stand in, to stand in right standing before God. And chapters 9, 10, and 11 talks about the rejection of righteousness, the rejection of this available righteousness, specifically on the part of Israel, on the part of God's people. Chapter 9 will deal with Israel's past, their spiritual past. And we looked at the patriarchs. We looked at the story of Exodus. We looked at some of the prophets. Chapter 10, will talk about Israel's spiritual present. And chapter 11 is going to talk about Israel's spiritual future, what God still can do for them, the future that they could have, the opportunities that are still available. The big takeaway from all of chapter nine from the past few weeks is this. The word of God has not failed. It looked like it because so many people who were supposed to be God's people were rejecting the Messiah. And so many people who were not God's people were accepting the Messiah. This whole thing got turned on its head. Those who were not God's people are now called God's people. Those who were not God's beloved are now called God's beloved. And now within this story, within this whole chapter of Israel's rejection of the Messiah and this expansion of God's covenant to the Gentiles, there's this whole story that's been developed Paul is just in these last three verses introducing the dialectic, the back and forth, the contrast between faith and works. So let's check this out, the last three verses of Romans chapter 9, verses 30 to 33. What shall we say then? What do we say in response to all this, to all that God has done? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, have attained it. Righteousness, right standing with God, a place in his covenant. The Gentiles who did not pursue this righteousness, they have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Important word. I'm going to circle that. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. They did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. This is an interesting clause here. As if it were based on works. They try to produce right standing with God, as if it were possible by what we do. Because the big question is this. Try to keep this big, big question in your mind as we look through these smaller details. Our relationship with God has gone wrong. What will make it right? This is the big question that humanity has to deal with. And then with, with I can't talk today. Beneath that are these smaller questions. Who are the covenant folk? Who are the people of God? The nations outside of Israel, they weren't looking for it when Paul went to them. There weren't just people in Philippi sitting around hoping an Israelite would come to them and explain to them how they can obtain covenant membership. There were some, few and far between. They were called God-fearers. But when Paul preached, this was heard by people not looking for God. No one seeks Him. And people across the whole social spectrum, male and female, slave and free, Jew and Greek, Gentile, and they heard this message and they were captured by it. They found themselves believing and trusting and baptized and they found themselves on the other side now of this covenant standing. So they attained righteousness. This is the key word. Righteousness, it's mentioned, oh, something like 33 times in the book of Romans. And eight of those, almost a third of those instances are from Romans 9:30 to about the middle of chapter 10. So they achieved this right standing through an active trust, faith, faith is trust, an active trust in Jesus to be for them what they can't be for themselves. That's the gospel. That's what verse 30 is saying. Okay, But we see in verse 31 now, Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. Paul has already said that nobody would be put to rights, nobody would be put to right standing with God by pursuing the law itself as it's laid out in the Torah and the books of the law. He says this in chapter three, verse 20, "'For by works of the law will no human being be justified in his sight,' talking about God, "'since through the law comes knowledge of sin.' And you remember all of chapter seven outlined this wrestle of this person, this hypothetical interlocular, interlocutor, who the more they try and keep the law, the more they find they're unable to do it. And this is very relatable tension. We looked at that example of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Look at verses 22 to 24 of chapter seven. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. The more that God's people clung to the law and tried to do it, tried to grit down and white knuckle the way through it, the more they found that evil lay close at hand and that the covenant membership, it could not be had this way by trying harder, by just trying to scrub ourselves clean and making ourselves better on our own. This was not the way to obtain right standing before God. Israel did not obtain righteousness, right standing, because of their adherence to the Torah, to the law itself, right? It's tempting to think, okay, we are Israel. We observe the Sabbath. We observe the ceremonial laws. We observe the purity laws, the kosher laws. We have circumcision. This distinguishes us from other people. Now we're in right standing with them. That is not the way to fulfill the law. I'm I'm getting ahead of myself, but in chapter 10, later on, Paul will be talking about what is the proper use and interaction with the law. It was a gift from God. It's not some second rate, bad, evil, dirty thing, but he's saying that God's people at the time were using it, interacting with it incorrectly. Okay, now Paul is going to introduce an interesting element to this. Let's keep reading the last part of, Verse 32, and continuing on to 33. They have stumbled, talking about God's people, over the stumbling stone, as it is written. And now he's quoting two parts of Isaiah. Behold, I am laying in Zion. Zion is shorthand for Jerusalem or Israel as a whole. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you see this? First, God's referring to a stone, a stone of stumbling, and then he refers to the stone as a hymn. I love when this happens, a stone, and the stone is personified. This is kind of like in the opening of the book of John, it says in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, it's referring to this thing, and then there's a pivot, it's a person, it's just a side point. But Paul is pulling together here two different passages from the book of Isaiah, both about a stone which God is going to place in the hearts of his people, right in Jerusalem, right in Israel itself. In Isaiah 1st chapter 14, pardon me, in Isaiah 8:14, the prophet is saying God is going to place in front of them a stone that his people will stumble over. They will get tripped up. By this, And then that same stone is referred to in Isaiah 28, 16, that this stone is also the foundation of a new temple that's yet to be built. The same stone, God's people are gonna trip up on it, but it's going to be the foundation of a new temple. Some say, some scholars would say that what Isaiah had in mind here was actually the coming of a king, of a Messiah. This will be the foundation for the great community that's focused on the temple. So in Isaiah 28, the prophet ends with the promise that anyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So Paul just quotes these two parts. He stacks them on top of each other. Both parts of these prophecies refer to a coming king. And so Paul is quoting Isaiah once again, to say that what God is doing is a fulfillment of what has been biblically promised. This isn't some detour from his main plans. God isn't changing his plans. He isn't going back on his word, but everything that has happened with Jesus and God's people has been part of what God said would take place all along. Israel's failure to believe in Jesus the Messiah, it's not a changing of God's plans, but God is being faithful to what he said would happen all along. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Matthew 21, because Jesus also talks about himself as being this stone, this imagery of stone. It's it's fascinating, The the, the digger you deep, the deeper that you dig with it. So turn to Isaiah, I can't talk. Turn to Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 46. There's a parable of the tenants that Jesus tells. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit draw near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, these are the people Jesus is talking to, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyards, open them up to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And then Jesus goes, aha! He says, Jesus said to them, have you ever read in the scriptures? It's a sarcastic, satirical question. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is what, pardon me, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables. They perceived that he was talking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowd, the crowds because they held him to be a prophet." What a word. Jesus is saying that the stone is also the sun. It's cool because the Aramaic word for stone and the Greek word for sun are very similar, Eben and ben. The sun becomes the one at whom The people will stumble because they don't want God to act in that way. The point within the present argument is that this whole crowd of people who were not expecting to join the family found that they have been brought in because the gospel has been proclaimed and they trusted that Jesus was Lord. And Paul says that they've been demarcated as members of God's family while God's own people have turned their back and said, nope, That's not how we imagined it. That's not how we want it. We don't see it like that. We aren't going to believe this message. And Paul says this constitutes a stumble. This constitutes a being tripped up. And Paul laments this at the beginning of chapter nine. He says, oh, that I could trade myself in, that my kinsmen could see this, could understand this, could be part of this. Perhaps some members of Israel imagined that the Messiah would come in and defeat, their oppressors, defeat their enemies. They would lead a violent revolution, overthrow the Roman Empire. Maybe the Messiah would usher in financial prosperity. But Jesus comes in and he spends his time with tax collectors and prostitutes and the outcasts and the losers. And he condemns those who practice the law. And he has Mercy and love for Gentiles and women caught in adultery. And then, and then he's crucified. The great victor is killed. That doesn't look like a great victory. What kind of Messiah is that? What kind of deliverance is that? This is a a revolution led by love where the leader gives himself up for his enemies. What kind of plan is that? How many of you make long, complicated plans to bless your enemies? And yet Jesus says, I am the stone I have been placed here by the father I am here and I'm not going anywhere you will build yourself on me or you will break yourself on me this is what Jesus says Charles Spurgeon said this we looked at it two weeks ago that the same Sun, which melts the wax hardens the clay the gospel is good news to the humble and it's offensive to the proud it's a scandal to the jews and it's foolishness to the greeks god isn't saying here are all the things that you need to do to be in right standing with me he says i'm sending jesus to do the work for you he'll make it right other religions may say this is what you need to do jesus is saying this is what i've done will you accept it or not all of the work is done he says on the cross famously it is finished not the life of being a Christian, not that that work is done, but the effort, the work that it takes to be in right standing with God, he has accomplished. If you ask someone, uh, hey, do you think you're in right standing before God? They may say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a good person. I volunteer, I recycle, I don't kick my dog. They will tell you all the things that they do. I do this, therefore I'm a good person and God is pleased with me. But those works... We're being told these works are not enough. Our problem is so big, it's a God-sized problem. And the only one who can fix it is God himself. And that is offensive. That is offensive. The legalists, those who tried to obtain right standing by adhering to the law, hated Jesus. They didn't think they needed his work because they had works of their own. Look at how good I've been. Look at all that I've done. Look at all that I've accomplished. God would be lucky to have me on his team. God's lucky that I'm around, that I'm working for him and not against him. I don't need your help, Jesus, but those, those people over there, yeah, those guys, they need your help. You should go help them out, Jesus. The legalist says, at least we tried. You're not good enough? Hey, well, at least we tried, even though they failed. And Paul is saying here, Jesus is either your cornerstone or your stumbling stone. This was the truth for God's people then, and this is the truth for God's people now. It's easy to think that this message of, let Jesus be your rock, it's a message for people who aren't Christians. Those those people, they need to build their life on Jesus. But this passage in Isaiah, where God says he's sending a stone, He's sending it in the midst of their fear and turmoil. Judgment lies before them. It lies behind them. Foreign nations have risen into mighty superpowers. And it might be tempting for God's people to think, hey, we we ought to align, align, align ourselves with them. They're doing pretty well. You know, we should get on their team. They'll help us out. God says, I will send a stone. I will place him in your midst. And whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in him, will not be put to shame, but some of you aren't going to like it. It's going to challenge you. It's gonna challenge your conceptions of what God is, of who you are, about the meaning of life. It's gonna challenge how you understand power and those who wield it, how you understand love and dignity and honor and those who receive it. And so for now, for us in the church today, God makes the same claim. Here is my son. Build your life on him or break your life on him. We in the West are very, very good at trying to make Jesus say what we want him to. We can align him with whatever our beliefs or agendas are at the time. We try and make him more palatable, less of something to trip on. We try and soften his corners. We try and smooth his edges, lessen his claims, make him more presentable, make Jesus more appealing, more comfortable, more relevant. Don't look at what Jesus said about money and generosity, about the love of money. Don't look at what Jesus said about long suffering and forgiving and loving your enemies. Don't look at what Jesus said about sexuality and the proper place of it. Never, 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 never talk about that. Mm -mm. Jesus becomes someone that we think about On Sunday, someone we come to for nice words. We listen to some songs, hopefully not too contemporary. We listen to a a nice talk, hopefully not too long. Gotta be quick and funny and nice. And then it's back to business for the rest of our week. Business as usual, back to normal. Think nice thoughts about Jesus and then do what you want. Do you see the danger with this? We think we're so different and better than than these people at the time, these people who stumbled over Jesus. But we run the risk of doing the exact same thing. Israel had their rites, their rituals, their ordinances, their performances, their values and culture. And Jesus came and He challenged all of that. And some of God's people said, no thanks, I'm gonna keep doing it my own way. We too go through our motions. We practice our rites and our rituals, our values of our culture. And we see Jesus come and challenge all of it. And we say in our polite Canadian fashion, no, thank you. I'm gonna stick with this. We become accidental Pharisees, thinking that the things we do are what puts us in right standing before God. But the prophet Isaiah would say that our, right acts are like filthy rags, are righteous deeds before God. The options are to build yourself on Jesus or to reject him. And my question for you today, Christian or non-Christian, how are you building your life? That term building, it's, it's continuous. I'm not asking if you made a profession of faith at a summer camp as a child. I'm asking if you have gospel forming practices and gospel sharing practices in your life. Are you being discipled and are you making disciples? How are you living? Uh, I've shared this quote before, I love it, by James K.A. Smith. He says, being a disciple of Jesus, it's not primarily a matter of getting the right ideas and doctrines and beliefs into your head in order to guarantee proper behavior. Rather, it's a matter of being the kind of person who loves rightly, who loves God and neighbor and is oriented to the world by the primacy of that love. We think of ourselves as primarily thinking things, the term homo sapien means, but a lot of classical literature and wisdom would identify humans as primarily loving things, primarily worshiping things, homo adorans. We say we are what we think, but I would contend we are what we repeatedly do. To paraphrase the second book of Aristotle's Ethics. So what are the patterns of your life? What are the patterns of your worship? We aren't building a chair or building a diaper, but building a life. And wouldn't it be a shame if what we thought was the way to build our lives was actually incorrectly. That's a terrifying thought. There are many ways to build our life. There's many ways to build our lives on Christ. And so, you know, that's kind of why we always come together and gather and learn and encourage ways that we can grow. Here's one particular facet of building our life on Jesus that I've seen neglected a lot. My default way, okay, I'll share this for myself. My default way of understanding what it means to build a life on Jesus is thinking about what I do individually each day. I'm a very independent person. It's a strength and it's a weakness. But the Christian life is a team sport. The Christian life is lived communally. And this communal calling, this may be a stumbling block for us independent individuals in the West. But this is why we do life together here at Bayview Glen Church. The Christian life is made up of what we repeatedly do and the church is just a gathering of believers with all of our various giftings and talents and abilities and when we come together as a whole we are equipped to act out god's great purposes to bring the kingdom of heaven here on earth we grow and we serve by doing this you actually you can't do one without the other you can't separate christian service and christian growth so let me, let me lean in. I'm going to lean on you a little bit, okay? But I do it in love. I want to say this as clearly as I can. If you are not walking in life together with other Christians, growing and serving, you're neglecting a crucial part of the Christian life. You're setting yourself up for failure and you're removing a tremendous opportunity for how God grows us. God has better things for you. So if you take nothing else away from this sermon, if you take nothing else away from every sermon you hear for the next year, would you commit to building your life on Jesus this way? There are other ways, please do those. But I've found that the communal aspect for myself is one that's so often neglected. And you can do this here at Bayview Glen Church. You don't have to do it here. You can do it somewhere else. But we have opportunities here. We have our discovery course. You can discover how to get involved here. We have our 3.30 prayer challenge where we can gather as a church, 3.30 every single day. To pray for God to work mightily in our midst. We have life groups, communities where you come and grow together and serve in your communities together. We have serve teams, opportunities to use your gifts, to discover your gifts. How are you wired? How has God made you to love and serve others? We keep, we keep talking about all of this, not because it's something that like we the staff at Bayview Glen need you to do. It's not like, oh, we really need more people to do this. I don't get a commission if God receives more prayers. The top life group leader doesn't earn a free trip to Cuba, but we could talk about that, I'm open to it. We believe at Bayview Glen that we are better together. It's one of our values, better together. And let this not be something that we stumble over but something that we build ourselves on as we as the church at Bayview Glen work together so that everyone, everywhere, can experience God's love and His created purpose through Jesus.